This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Welcome to episode 96 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking a little bit Parisian in his stripes, his red, his blue, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Thank you very much for that wonderful um, introduction. I have to say the sun is just peeping through the clouds here. I don't know how it is with you in Cambridgeshire, but here we have the beaming Thordis, Sophia Maria Fredrickson, beaming away beautifully. It's always, uh, I always wait to see which way around my middle names will come out uh, when this podcast <laughs> starts. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, jo- joining us for the first time ever on Talking Dirty, Kate Bradbury, wildlife gardener, author, writer. I'm sure we've all poured over your books and articles. Do you have any middle names to share before we get stuck into the plants? <laughs> uh, Grace. Oh, lovely. Yeah. It's Catherine Grace, officially. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. But I never, I never use it. Any particular reasons behind the names? Uh, I think my, <laughs> I think my mom wanted to call me Grace as my first name, but my dad said that that would be dangerous uh, <laughs> if I wasn't very graceful. So um, yes, it's my middle name. It would have been an ironic name if someone had given me the name Grace. I see where mm. he was coming from. <laughs> yeah. I'm one of the <laughs> clumsiest, <Yeah. laughs> like yeah, a quite walking heifer lump. So. <laughs> It wouldn't have worked. Um, on the video version of this podcast, people can see that your backdrop, rather than a room in your house, you have got a beautiful photo of your garden behind you. Yes. Before we get stuck into talking about your your new book and your gardening endeavours, let's just talk about this plot. Right. OK, so this is my garden. It was this or um, a pile of washing that I haven't put away yet because I'm in my spare room, which <laughs> sort of doubles up as the office. So, um, yes, I'll just be really honest with you there. Uh, so my garden, um, yeah, um, bought bought the house in, in 2019 and sort of completely raised it and then turned it into this wildlife oasis. So I don't think you can see the pond, um, but there's a pond in there, quite a big one, and a sort of wildflower meadow uh, so just, just a 40 foot garden it's very standard sort of terraced victorian terrace um but yes lots lots of things for wildlife um okay what is the tree in your garden i can see at the back uh, you should be able to see three um there's a silver i can see two i can see two anyway so so the the, the two planted together uh yep. close to each other there's, there's a hawthorn a standard hawthorn um and a rowan and yep. then on the other side, but I think when this photo was taken, it was still very, very small. There's a there's a very skinny silver birch that just goes up. Um, so yeah, three trees. And you're known predominantly for wildlife gardening. Yeah. When did that whole side of your gardening endeavor start? Did you start as a wildlife gardener? Did you develop into a wildlife gardener? Pretty much. Um, it all happened in uh, ooh, we're going back nearly twenty years. Um, so um, my my ex partner or my partner at the time, um, her neighbours, no, her housemate threw an old duvet into the backyard. It was, you know, when you're in your twenties and you're just useless. Um, so, um, yeah, he threw an old duvet that was a bit mouldy instead of like washing it or throwing it away. He just chucked it into the backyard, and um. 
a bumblebee, a red-tailed bumblebee made a nest in it. And the neighbours complained. We didn't realise we were in our twenties, uh, and um, and the the yeah the neighbours complained, and the landlord got in touch and said if you don't if you don't get rid of these bees then we will. And we were like what bees, um, and then um, I sort of got in touch with Bumblebee Conservation Trust, who'd only been had only been around for a few weeks. They they just launched, and um, and so um, I got in touch with them, and they told me how to how to move a bumblebee nest. So having not really realised that this bumblebee nest was there, suddenly I was sort of dressing up in in old in an old net curtain, cutting this nest out of a duvet and putting it into a shoebox with lots of grass and moss, and then taking it on this midnight journey to my allotment. And then I put it under a hedge in my allotment and fell in love with them, and it sort of all started from there, really. Yeah, clearly you're not the average person who phones up the, bum- the sort of Bumblebee Conservation Trust and you already had an allotment. So clearly a lot of sort of nature appreciation going yeah. on before the duvet incident. Yeah, I mean, I've been a gardener since I was three. You know, it's it's, it's always been in me. But um, the I think I think uh, certainly, in you know, in my early 20s, you know, I was a gardener, but I never fully appreciated the role that wildlife played. I think a lot of gardeners don't. Um, and so, yeah, suddenly it all just sort of came sort of crashing. I think I, I say that like, the bees found me rather than I found them. Because um, <laughs> that, 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 that sort of pivotal moment of Johnny throwing the duvet out of the window, uh, out of the back door, just, just sort of changed the course of my <laughs> life and career, really, because I just got completely obsessed. So yeah, but there's also yeah. something else to say about bees, I think, and bees' nests and all the rest of it. And I think your neighbours at, t- at the time were being overly worried yeah, um, because most bees, I mean, they including honeybees, of course, that everybody's familiar with those. But if you don't attack them, they won't attack you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was, you know, it was one of those things where they're all very small backyards. Everybody was renting. Everybody was very young, and yeah. so th- there was a huge disconnect. Um, yeah, with the natural yeah, but that's world. all part of the learning curve, Kate, yeah. isn't it? Which yeah. is- which is something that we do. It comes with age. I mean, and I you, so, yeah. another, another remark you said there was as a lot of gardeners don't probably appreciate. Sorry, I've got a very vocal cat in here. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. Many gardeners start off with, we say, shall we say, a certain amount of ignorance about wildlife. Mm. It becomes apparent when you're handling the soil, you're planting, you're digging, you're doing whatever you're doing. And then suddenly you become aware of the fact that you're not alone. There are other other beings are with you and around you. Yeah. And I think that's one of the joys of it. And one of the joys of your garden, I can see, is going to be pollinators. Yes, lots and lots of them, <laughs> yes. Although, although not as many this year, which, which was quite upsetting because it was so dry. Um, but yes, sort of, when we have... That photograph was not this year. I'm thinking, no, that, year. I'm thinking you're sitting in your garden now, you see. <laughs> nice. It's all an illusion, but... <laughs> It's, it's true this year has been hard because, of course, it's this cycle. If the plants don't have enough water, then they're not producing as much nectar and then there's just not as much at yeah, the, yeah. or as much liquid full stop. So there aren't as many aphids, which then mean that there is not as much of the wasps and the birds and everything. I mean, the, the cycle, it kind of blows your mind. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's been quite eye-opening, actually, this year. I think this is obviously the worst drought that I've ever known. I wasn't around in, in 76. But, yeah, I mean, for me, it was like, whoa, a lot of plants didn't actually flower. Um, and I, I hadn't really, I know this sounds really stupid as like someone who's got gardening qualifications. It hadn't occurred to me that really stressed plants just won't flower. I thought they'd flower quickly or they'd flower, you know, sooner and then be over with very quickly and run to seed, like bolting. We all know about bolting. But yeah, loads of plants and loads of sort of so-called drought tolerant plants didn't actually flower, which was really 
quite, as I say, quite eye-opening. Um, and then I just find caterpillars on just the tiniest little scraps of plants. I've raised more caterpillars in my bathroom this year than ever before, I've raised about 100, um, just because I kept finding them on plants that weren't going to sustain them because they... The, the 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 adult butterflies and, and moths were, were sort of desperate they were laying eggs on plants that they knew wouldn't really cut it but um they had no choice so yeah it's been it's been yeah it's, it's been quite a difficult year really for for a wildlife lover um, i'm disappointed now that i've never thought to raise any caterpillars in my bathroom <laughs> but i love the fact that it i think once you get into any kind of wildlife gardening and i can't claim to be anywhere near as far down the road as you but it is a a big focus for me in how i garden and it's what a lot of the joy I get out of my garden um, and I think you get sucked in and you do find yourself kind of going a little bit above and beyond yeah yeah because you do. You're, you're emotionally invested yeah I mean certainly you know certainly in the in the park um, in my local park you know if 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 a butterfly lays eggs on nettles and then the park keepers come and, and cut down those nettles and those those butterflies aren't going to survive um so when i find butterflies in the park i always when i find caterpillars in the park i always take them and and, and raise them at home because i know that they're not going to survive um so yeah I've, um but it weirdly it it was quite a good it, around here it's been quite a good year for for small tortoiseshells and peacock butterflies so i found a lot of caterpillars um and then and there was one day where i was picking off the caterpillars and the guy with his strimmer was waiting for me to get all the caterpillars off um and i just about managed it so yeah i've, I've yeah i've done some good work and i've just got this little setup i've got this mesh cage that i sit in, sit in my bath and my friends come around and <laughs> I think you're very strange but um yeah I was about to ask whether or not being an official kind of wildlife author and writer protected you from people thinking you were completely mad but clearly not <laughs> slightly I think I think I think I mean it's you know it's, it's been going on for quite a while now um and you know um I think initially you know I used to get laughed at a lot and then you know as the books started coming out and you know the, the occasional tv appearance would sort of be slipped in this you know they respect it a bit more and, um, but yeah they, they draw the line at keeping caterpillars in the bath I have to say sadly because everyone should have caterpillars in the bath. they're not aquatic caterpillars to confirm it's not like <laughs> no, they're in a mess cage and, and they eat nettles yeah. Talking of books, of course, you have got a beautiful new book newly out. I think Alan has a. Oh, Alan's got one. oh everyone, everyone apart from me has got theirs to hand. All got one. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's become part one with your garden. That was quite amazing. Oh really? Did it? Oh look, that's cool. Right here it is. It's absolutely beautiful. The tree in my garden. I just want to say I had a PDF. I haven't given away my book. <laughs> um, the tree in my garden, choose one tree, plant it and change the world. I think that's a great way to incentivize people. You are clearly mad about trees. You've managed to fit three into your 40 foot garden. Uh, how did the book come about? How did the book come about? I, I mean, I think um, it was a sort of joint collaboration with, with me and DK, really. Um, you know, once you've written one book about wildlife gardening, sort of where do you go from there? Um, and I think I, I just, you know, climate change is, is sort of starting to really sort of hit home. I think, you know, we're all starting to notice the differences. Um, it's all getting a bit scary. And I think, you know, there are things that we can do as individuals um, not to say that, you know, we don't need to stop using fossil fuels. We don't need to, you know, reduce our consumption of meat and all of those things. But actually, if we've got outside space, we can do amazing things with it. And those amazing things can bring wildlife into our gardens and also every single leaf absorbs carbon dioxide. So, you know, growing trees, planting trees, it gives us ownership. 
uh, plants something that, that we all fall in love with, that will connect us to the seasons, that will, you know, bring us closer to nature and also do a really valuable job of, of taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which, which we desperately need to do. So, yeah, it was just, just all about that, really. And just there's 22 million gardens in the UK. If everyone planted another tree tomorrow or the first tree, that's 22 million trees. That's that's. That's a significant amount of trees. So um, yes, I just, I just, I just want us to all just do more. Really, I just always want everyone to do more. Do more for wildlife. Do more for the planet. And ultimately, that means doing more for ourselves. So you know, literally yesterday, walking around the garden, we just had some quite stiff um, northerly winds here. Mm. I was walking through the wood, and it's absolutely littered with acorns. Oh. I just suddenly thought, you know, here we have trees. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know. With a little bit of what you're saying. And there's something I, I just like to, to, to touch on. It's, it's a tree that's not in your book, Kate. Um, it's Polonia tomentosa, the Chinese foxglove tree. Oh, yes, I, yes. I was reading an article recently by Robin Lane Fox, and this pertains to drought. That well, Polonia tomentosa has an enormously long taproot that goes down in search of water, so it can survive when other trees perhaps are not surviving so well. But then getting that water from down below brings it up, and then the water then goes out into the side shoots. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. Now, Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I know that Robin Lane Fox is a respected garden writer, and I doubt that he would write such a thing without checking mm. the facts, but I haven't checked it. But it just occurred to me, and it's also a, a tree with very large leaves, yeah. which is good for the for the getting rid of um, carbon and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it absorbs lots of carbon. I mean, we, we really do. We need to be thinking um, of, of you know, drought-tolerant trees to grow. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was it was quite a sort of it wasn't a dilemma, but in the book, you know, writing writing, you know, there's the wildlife um, trees and then there's the climate change trees, yeah. um, and obviously the book will be published in in the United States as well. So there's a sort of, the trees had to work for sort of both both uh, both sides of the uh, um, Atlantic. It must have been really tricky because I think it's fifty trees in the book. Mm. Tricky to to you can't I suppose list all of them, and you must be sitting there kind of wanting to cram in another tree and thinking, <laughs> I mean, well, that'll I'm... make it fifty one. Or yeah, I mean, I I literally handed it in and then spent another three weeks like ah, <laughs> I thought, what have I missed? Um, and I knew that I was going to miss loads. Um, but um, Kate, yeah, Kate, it... all is not lost. There's another book. <laughs> There's another book. Um, yeah, but I think um, for me certainly, I wanted to make it as accessible as possible and, and easy for beginners and people who've never planted a tree before could get something from this book so I generally sort of I, I suppose I, I mean I wouldn't call it safe but maybe maybe it is a bit safe maybe you know just, there's some there's some very there's some very commonly grown trees in there very easy to grow trees um and um yeah maybe the next one will have a foxwood tree in it well also <laughs> coming at it from a, a wildlife gardening point of view you um you want to include quite a lot of natives because mm. as you point out these are the trees that have evolved alongside the local wildlife so if you know mm. and again it is difficult when you're serving different audiences in different countries but you know yeah. here in the UK there are a number of native trees which are absolutely wonderful at different times of year yeah. or you know to serve different wildlife needs yes definitely um and the thing about the, the sort of general rule with wildlife gardening um is that um for pollinators for the nectar feeders and, and the pollen 
gatherers um it doesn't really matter if it's native or not some species are more fussy than others so some do require native flowers but most are generalists and most you know nectar is just sugar water and it's the same regardless of what flower you get it from pollen is is pollen it does vary in quality but that doesn't necessarily equate to, to its nativeness or its non-nativeness so as a general rule you can grow a mixture of natives and non-native flowering plants but the trees and the shrubs for the leaf munchers, for the caterpillars, for the aphids, for all of those things, they usually, less so aphids, but but very much so caterpillars, they need to be native plants. Um, so, you know, some butterflies will lay eggs only on one type of plant. Some moths will lay eggs on only three or four types of plant and they're all natives. And actually something that I really want to do is I want to look at if we can have non-native versions of, so for example, the silver birch, which attracts, you know, lots of species of moth, for example, the buff tip, which actually looks like a, a silver birch twig. Does our native silver birch, could it be replaced or, you know, uh, complemented by, you know, does the Himalayan birch serve the same number of species? What about the American birches? Do, do they work as well in the same way? Because with climate change, the silver birch, it's quite a moisture loving tree. It's probably not going to do very well going forward. Could some of the more drought tolerant birches come through and, and, and replace those things? So I think it'd be really interesting to, to actually find out if some of these non-natives certainly within the same family can can yeah. provide the same habitats um as the natives and obviously the fact that we're in this this point where climate change is feeling scarier it is a a, a driver behind writing the book mm. it makes it both i suppose more challenging and more exciting because you want to have these natives but equally there's no point planting a tree as you say that isn't going to thrive so yeah. then and also i suppose like we've seen um all of these hawk moths turning up this summer in the the heat. I've heard it sort of suggested that that's because heat and uh, mainland Europe has pushed them to migrate north um, mm -hmm. to our shores. Yeah, the hummingbird hawk moths. Yeah. So when you see uh, actually a, maybe a ch slight change in the fauna, uh, then introducing yeah. those different you know exactly. trees to serve those species because it's really complicated yeah it does and i think and i think i'm sure there are some but i think there need to be a lot more studies of predicting what's going to fly over on its own what we can help come over you know like can you imagine it you know at dover there's lots of little species you know what, what about the amphibians you know all the other things that, that are finding it too hot there that could actually take refuge in the uk um you know and help you know push them push them north obviously we're going to run out of north we do need to stop temperatures increasing but um in the meantime yeah there's, there's lots of things that i think we could do that, that we're possibly not yet doing um but yeah certainly certainly bringing trees from and also um as part of the research you know um that i was doing for the book you know i spoke to um i spoke to kevin at, at q the um arboriculturalist at q and um who replaced tony kirkham and um he said you know you've got you've got a beech tree our beech tree fagus sylvatica is is going to really struggle with the droughts but actually beech um in its range goes down quite far down to the caucasus so actually you could get fagus sylvatica but from over there from down there and use the seeds from those plants to bring them here and they'll be more drought tolerant they'll, they'll, they'll just be naturally more drought tolerant so there's lots of things we can do there as well i find i found it really fascinating actually yeah. Actually, that's quite a good point. If you take if you if you take seed or propagation material from drought areas of the same yeah. plant, um, they'll just shove them up a few hundred miles. <laughs> then then they'll do better. Than good the idea. Actual. I like yeah. that. 
yeah and also crossbreeding as well i mean there's like you know so much crossbreeding done with like elms you know i live in brighton where we've got the national collection of elm trees most of them are hybrids which which would you know uh resistant to to dutch elm disease there's there's loads of things that we can do it's absolutely loads of things yeah we have an elm tree in the garden here which is a scrappy looking old thing because it, it was next to a big old tree, which I took out because the elm is probably now about 30 feet tall wow. and it's living and it's not affected by the Dutch elm beetle. Um, and I know that the Dutch elm beetle flies at a height of around sort of six feet or something like that, two meters. So that's the minute an elm tree grows that tall, it becomes infected because they'll pounce on it. But mine has survived. And I, you know, I took the other tree out so that the elm could have a chance. Right. It's a bit shaken because it's been pushed to one side by the other tree. But it was important to me to feel that elms, I mean, they've just gone. I mean, I saw them in, yeah. during my childhood. I saw Dutch elm disease and what it did. Mm. And there's just numerous dead trees. And I always remember being, as a child, learning about trees. And the description of an elm tree was like a cumulus cloud. Mm. And I yeah. thought, yeah, that's just so right. Yeah. Um, and so it's important to me to leave the elm tree in my garden to just see how it does. So, I mean, I keep close watch on it because I see it out of my bathroom window. Yeah. So, you oh, know. Yeah. We've got, we've got, we've got elm, elm uh, disease, like, um, sort of volunteers all around Brighton um, who sort of, you know, tell the, tell the elm, um, I don't know, the, the elm team. We've got like dedicated team at Brighton Council. who, who team of elm team. elves. Yeah, <laughs> they are basically. They are basically, and they go and um, yeah, they go and do things. I love that. Really... I mean, this book fascinating to put together. I can see how it would be time consuming because you've got to whittle down your trees, and you've got a lot of research to do into climate change statistics, and then it also starts delving into things like what's going on beneath the soil and that relationship yeah. between fungi and trees as well. <laughs> yeah, um, I really enjoyed researching all about fungi. Actually, that, that I mean that that sort of stuff like really interests me i love it i love the idea that you know we're, we're learning that trees are community species they don't really like being planted on their own they don't really like being street trees um they they, they really like being planted in small copses where the fungi um travels between them and and you know and there's there's some i think it's beach again actually there's there's there's, there's some examples of where you've got a beech tree that is pretty much dead but all of the other beech trees around it are keeping it alive because they're they're feeding it with, with through the fungi and it, it's just really stuff you're like wow you know they're holding up their friends um so it's yeah kind of symbiotic, yeah. symbiotic relationship isn't it yeah it's it is quite astonishing yeah i mean i think you know there's research coming out now that's saying you know we, we need to be prepared for the fact that you know one day we're going to find out that trees are sentient beings and you know um i think i think that would be quite incredible and all plants, maybe. Who knows? I like to think that they might be. Well, they're certainly very, very <laughs> clever, as we find yeah. out on this podcast. Absolutely extraordinary plants. And well, we all know somebody who talked to trees, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Show and tell is a big part of this podcast. Obviously, it's slightly different today because we're talking about a lot of sort of trees that many of us might know. But I know you have brought along a few wow. sprigs. Rather than whole trees like in a pot, you brought along some sprigs to, wow. to brandish at the camera. So what, what did you want to sort of rave about? Ah. Uh, so um, I thought I'd start with this one. So this is hawthorn. So hawthorn's my favourite tree in the world because it's really versatile. You can grow it as um, a shrub. You can grow it as a hedge. You can grow it as a standard tree. You can grow it as a kind of scrubby, kind of huge tree thing. Um, it's <laughs> very technical there. Uh, it's 
flowers in spring. Um, and my favourite thing about the flowers is that they smell of dead bodies. <laughs> uh, so they release the same chemical. I've forgotten the name of the chemical, but they release the same chemical as a recently deceased mammal. Um, and that brings in the flies, which which pollinate the flowers. So they're pollinated largely by flies, um, which I just think is really cool. Um, and, and historically, you weren't allowed to bring hawthorn into the house because it would bring on the plague. It was, there was, and it was because of the smells, because the smell of the flowers were the same as the smell of the... Because obviously after the plague, you know, there were lots of dead bodies hanging around houses. And, and so, yeah, so people knew they associated the smell of um, hawthorn flowers with, with the smell of death. So I, I just find it amazing that, that we've got this flower, this, this, this plant that sort of has this sort of evolutionary um, wonderment going on that it that smells like dead bodies in order to bring the flies in. Um, so then, yes, provides, <laughs> stop talking about dead bodies. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, so, yeah, the flowers are good for pollinators. The berries, these are called haws, um, are really high in antioxidants. So there was a study a few years ago now, possibly about 10 years ago, that came out that said, um, obviously, berries have different levels of antioxidants in them. Those with the height, I've just done it, that again, I don't know, it's just fading into the garden. <laughs> um, those with the highest um, levels of antioxidants help birds um, help relieve the physical stresses of migration on migrating birds. So things like thrushes, um, black bears, I mean, some things that some birds that we don't think of as migrating actually do migrate um, a little bit or a lot. Robins, they eat the berries in autumn. And again, it's just like the wonder of nature. Everything's evolved to just be timed so perfectly. The berries come out in autumn, they fill their boots with the berries, then they fly off without any physical stresses. I think it's just muscle pain and stuff. It just means that, you know, if they're flying for like two days straight, they don't get cramp. <laughs> um, so these are really, really useful. Um, hawthorn berries are sort of eaten very quickly in autumn compared to ivy berries, which are always left right until the end. Um, then you've got the leaves, which are munched on by lots of species, um, moths, aphids, thrips, all of those sorts of things. And then on a mature tree, you get quite gnarly bark so that... Um, insects and things will, will hibernate among the bark so yeah it's just a wonder tree it's absolutely wonderful and I love it. Interesting talking about timing because what we've seen with this sort of so-called early autumn this year is that timing shifting forward a little bit so those of you who really know about wildlife gardening and and the impact of all these things on nature is there a concern about that? Oh, huge. I mean, climate change is just messing up all of the timings for everything. So um, bees are coming out of hibernation early. Flowers are popping up in, you know, winter. Um, you know, caterpillars, you know, just just in spring, you know, the leaves burst, the moths lay eggs on the caterpillars, the baby birds need to eat the caterpillars. So there's just a very sort of linear timeline that just keeps everything ticking over just very perfectly um, and that's being disrupted um so yes it, it is it is hugely worrying and that's why as gardeners one of the things we can do is to keep things in flower all year round so if a bee does come out of hibernation early it's got some nectar and pollen to categories um, <laughs> categories um yeah so yeah keep Grow flowers throughout the year so that if bees come out of hibernation early, they've got something to to feed themselves up on. Because a bumblebee is only about thirty four hours away from death if it doesn't have any nectar or pollen or any nectar. Nectar is, is gives them the energy they need to fly. So yeah, always have something in flower so that so that bees can 
feed if they come out of hibernation and they can either go back in again or start a nest early, which some of them do, which is just quite terrifying. Um, and um, um, and supplementary feeding, so feeding of hedgehogs. Um, I feed hedgehogs um, in my garden, um, especially this year. It's been absolutely terrible for hedgehogs because the ground was so dry and they eat beetles and caterpillars. Um, and yeah, so supplementary feeding. And I think for birds as well, um, we, you know, live mealworms if you if you can afford them um you know when when there's few caterpillars in the trees just just to keep things going i think that's that can be really helpful i've been mocked a lot this year for having what i call a hedgehog drinker which is basically uh, a saucer that should be under a plant pot but i've just sort of sunk it a little bit into the ground and put some water in it by oh, the gate yeah um because i know I I think I only saw a hedgehog once and the dog scared away immediately. It was just really bad timing. The hedgehog came in, the dog went out, she woofed in its face and it went straight back out again. It would have come straight back in again when the dog went in. I'm convinced that I never see them, but I'm sure they're there. So I have what I call the hedgehog drinker. My other half on an almost daily basis likes to laugh at me because he says we've only ever seen a hedgehog in this garden once. And yet you have a hedgehog drinker. But I think put it down anyway. Get a night camera and put it out. I I, I watch hedgehog videos every morning. Um, So, yeah, put my little camera out, get my hedgehog videos. Um, I've got a bird bath, which is a ground bird bath which is actually just a hedgehog bath um and sometimes they take a bath in it um and sometimes they defecate in it and then they still always drink from it they're just going <laughs> but, uh, yes um hey it's called recycling yeah yeah i, I believe so um what a but, great way to start the day with oh, your no. daily dose of hedgehog videos <laughs> tea in bed with hedgehog videos is the only way i ever want to start my day for the rest of my life <laughs> i love it talking of uh, hawthorn as well you mentioned you can put it in a hedge of mm. course that is another way of introducing trees to your garden if you yes. have the, the space the the sort of time the whatever to, to put a hedge together and a lovely yeah. mixed native hedge including trees you know that's that's a great idea yeah. I think the fascination thing about planting a hedge for nature because um i've done it here and we planted originally it's interesting because the hawthorn that was originally in our garden as field hedges mm-hmm. before it became garden is a much earlier blooming hawthorn than the one that i bought in oh that's interesting uh, yeah um but when i planted the hedges i planted hawthorn field maple and holly lovely um, uh, which is which are all for nature. Yeah. But yeah. into that mix has come ivy, wow. like the birds eating the seeds and popping them out at the top of the hedge. Mm-hmm. So you get ivy, you get honeysuckle, lovely. you know, vine, yeah. which is an, another lovely, um, you know, pollinating plant for moths at night and all the rest of it. Um, and then it has those lovely red berries, which the birds take and then deposit the seed somewhere else. So somebody else has a honeysuckle <laughs> um, and all of those things. The only thing I don't allow in my hedges, because it really is too um, demanding on the humans that have to look after the hedges. And that is the dog rose. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, people won't they don't want to go near a dog rose to, when they when the hedges need trimming. <laughs> <laughs> But all those other things that, you know, you the evergreen of the ivy and the evergreen of the yeah. holly is good, lovely shelter in the in yeah. the winter. Late berries in the holly on the holly. Yeah, um, you get you get moths breeding in them, you get hedgehogs sleeping in the bottom. Yeah. And the other thing about the other thing about hedges is because they're at the same height as as the cars, if you plant a hedge in it in an urban environment, um, because they're yeah, because they're at the same height as the pollution, they absorb more pollution than than a tree. Yeah. Um, per per square meter or you know whatever but um they yeah they 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 
yeah, they're at the right level to to absorb lots of polluting polluting chemicals. So and if you're in an exposed position, there are great wind filters too. Great wind, and again, wind is you know wind is going to be quite a thing. Yeah. Uh, going forward so yeah we should all I, I mean every time there's a every time there's a there's a there's a great big storm and people lose their fence panels i sort of go on twitter and plea that people replace them with with hedges um because it will save them so much heartache in, in years to come but um but also it's just so much better for wildlife mm. hedges great idea i thought that was that kind of it might seem like an obvious thing but actually in a book that's about 50 different tree species to recommend hedge planting made absolute perfect sense one of the largest trees that probably you can in this part of the world anyway is the mediterranean oak quercus ilex mm. um, and we planted a hedge of that and i first saw the hedge a hedge of that a great dexter in east sussex christopher lloyd's garden and i thought well that's a that's a very good evergreen hedge ah, um, and, yeah. you know, i plant when i planted my hedge i planted a 30 centimeter sapling and an acorn at every <laughs> every meter because I couldn't afford to do anything yeah, else. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to know that, I mean, I'm I'm coming from this in the angle of growing trees from seed because, yeah. you know, trees are costly things to buy for a lot of people, but you can grow from seed. Mm-hmm. I know because I've done it. Mm-hmm. But five years after planting those acorns, they were taller than the saplings. Yeah, I yeah, believe that. But, you know, unless you know how oak trees, when they grow, they put down this taproot, and if you break that taproot, they take a long while to recover from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really need to plant the seed and leave it where it is to grow. Yeah. It's something they often say about the kind of instant impact, big, expensive trees that people can buy. That Obviously, it fast tracks you a little bit, but basically within five, ten years, the little whips, the the maidens, whatever that you plant, will kind of catch up and overtake yeah. anyway. Yeah, if you spend £100 on a tree, that tree is just going to sit there and sulk for two years. So if you spend £20 on a tree, it's going to go whoop. <laughs> so yes, I, I'm I'm a firm believer in. Uh, I mean, you know, it, there's a balance, isn't there? Because for a lot of people who who don't know, you know, you, to prune um, a maiden, um, you know, you want to get it to a point where, I would say, buying buying a tree that's like between one and two years old. Um, so it's already had its sort of, sort of formative pruning done first, um, and then you know, but yeah, buying like a four or five year old tree is not really worth it. I don't think. Yeah. What What was your next bit of show? <gasps> so uh, my next show and tell. Um, it's my first conger of the year. Um, so I really, I mean, everyone loves conkers, right? We all love conkers, but I I always get a conker, first conker of the year, and then it remains in a coat pocket um, pretty much for the whole year. And so, you know, you get, you, you've got your autumn coats, you've got your spring coats, whatever. So my autumn coat always has a conker in the pocket and it, I, it always gets to that point where I'm like, oh, it's a bit nippy, I'll get my autumn coat out. And I reach into the pockets and there's, there's at least one conker there. So yeah, it has, um, it has significance. So- um, It also has another factor, Kate, because Conkers were used as moth repellents. Yes, and spider repellents. Yeah. 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 So your 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 conker pocket would never get moth eaten. <laughs> I don't know how effective they were, but um yeah, they've been used um they've been used for lots of reasons, haven't they? But um yeah, yeah so the horse chestnut tree is one of the trees in the book. Obviously, if you've got a large garden, it's not native, it's native to, to the Balkans, um, but it's naturalized here and, and lots of species. Lots of species um, feed on them. Um, obviously, the bees love the sort of candelabra-esque flowers that um, yep. come in spring. Um, and then the leaves are eating. There's the horse chestnut leaf miner, isn't there, which is causing some concern. Yeah, it is. I think it's less of a th- threat to the tree and more a threat to the, the appearance of the tree. So, yeah, it, it just causes a very early autumn, doesn't it? It causes leaf. But, but the blue tits, are, are, I think, you know, 
doing a good job of um, sort of getting that population in check, I think. Well, there are other Aesculus, Aesculus, um, some of the North American buckeyes, as they're called. Um, for people, that I'm just sort of thinking, you know, because a horse chestnut's a very big tree. Yeah. It's very dark underneath. Nothing grows underneath a horse mm. chestnut tree. Um, and, you know, if you want to grow something that has conkers, um, and, you know, for the fun of that or the seed and the same kind of flowers as the um, the horse chestnut tree, varieties of Aesculus. And one is called Aesculus parviflora. And that has these much later than a than a, a horse chestnut tree. But it has these lovely candelabras in sort of pinky colours. Mm. They're always full of insects and things. I've noticed I've got one in the garden here, which is lovely. And oh. at the end of the year, you get these conkers, but they don't hang like a horse chestnut. They sit upright. Ah. Like little blob on a stalk nice yeah it's funny things like conkers they have such sentimental value I can't imagine there is anybody really watching or listening who didn't collect them when they were young I never really did conker fighting I just was amazed by them and sort of stroking oh. them and polishing yeah, them the appearance of them is such that they look as if they've been varnished when they're yeah. fresh yeah. Oh. this wonderful wonderful shine Mm. They're wonderful. And my mum planted one of the ones from my, I think it was a conquer tree at my first school. So she's got this, she's kept it. We didn't have a big enough garden to let it go wild. So she's just kept it in a massive bin. That's a huge lot of pot. And, uh, and it had its second conquer this year. It's a little bit sort of limited by being in this oh, pot. Yeah, second conquer oh, from my primary school tree. Brilliant. <laughs> and your third and I think final show and tell? So this is just a pine cone that um, I got from like a, a Scots pine that, that sort of grows near me. Um, I like pine cones um, and I've always got, I've got a little nature table downstairs and I've always got about six pine cones on it because I am six years old. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> I completely relate to that. I've got, I've, I mean, we one of the trees not native, of course, that we planted here, first of all, for a shelter belt tree was the Monterey pine from... America, Pinus radiata. It's a mm. fast-growing tree, but has those whopping great cones on it. And yeah. whenever they drop, I'm, I'm gathering them up. And, and it's become a habit. When I go anywhere uh, yeah. to a garden or to somewhere and I spot an unusual pine cone, I have to ask if I can have it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it happens um, to a greater degree than anywhere else in the grounds of Sandringham House in Norfolk, which is um, King Charles III's residence in Norfolk. Lovely. Um, and I was being given a private tour of, of the garden by the head gardener, the then head gardener. And I said, can I pick a few of the pine cones? He said, yeah, please do. You'll save us a job because we'll get them up before the mower comes around. So, so I came back with a lovely selection of pine cones from there. But, you know, it's another thing people should probably be aware of is the fact that you can grow pine trees. Yes. You sit your cone somewhere and it opens and it opens yeah. in the heat. As oh, you're done there. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll see you'll you can get the seeds out of it. And if you give those seeds the chance to germinate, they will. Yeah. And it's amazing to think as well that some birds have their bills, you know, so yeah. sort of perfectly um adapted to, to get the seeds out of out of the uh the gaps in the pine cones. Yeah. It's really special. One of our smallest birds in in England, the goldcrest. Mm. Great lover of pine trees. Yeah. Tiny little bird, you get one in a matchbox. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you get given seed? I went for a look around the gardens at Robinson College in Cambridge, which actually, shout out to them, they basically open all the year round for the National Garden Scheme, almost all year. You just have to book in and you can go and have a wander around and raise money for charity at the same time. And um, and I was thinking, oh, that tree is amazing. And it was, and I don't know the, the real name, the proper name of it, but the Golden Rain Tree. 
looked amazing, um, covered in all of its golden rain, which was yeah. also a little bit sort of peachy and albany. And said, oh, would you like some seed? So now I've got to figure out whether or not it's easy to grow. <laughs> but I've got it, is, it's grow. it is relatively easy from seed. I've done it. Um, but it does not flower well in cold, wet summers. So it's thanks to this year's period of drought and all the heat that we had that that, that has flowered so well. Ours did brilliantly in the garden here. And it's it's a, it's a joy to behold because it it flowers rather later than most other trees. So it's in, it's July onwards. Um, so it's nice to have it for that. Yeah, I dream of many, many trees in whatever this magical, mythical future garden is where I have lots of room for them. <laughs> <laughs> So I might as well make a start trying to grow some from seed. Um, Before we wind things up, Kate, we always do FLOMO for anyone joining us for the first time. It's our sort of flower, plant, tree, anything living and green and wonderful that gives us a fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your book, as someone who wants to grow a multitude of trees, certainly gave me lots of FLOMO. Um, I don't actually know why I don't have a spindle, because I am obsessed with all things sort of orange and the whole orange, pink, fruit, seed combo. I mean, that. Every time I see them out and about, I think, oh, I really need this in my garden. So you shot Spindle up there to near the top of my FOMO list. And you and my walk around Robinson College reminded me of how desperately I want a Persian ironwood. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The autumn colour was just starting to really glow yeah. um, when I when I laid eyes on it the other day. Can I tell you what's equally thrilling about Parotia persica is the actual fact the flowers. They're not big. They are not big, but they are the most wonderful coral red. They're like, like little rubies. They're gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Really yeah. beautiful. Really beautiful. I adore them. And, they, and they, they happen when there's not much else happening around at that in, for colour at that time of the year, you know, so yeah. February, March, April. And, and it's... It's just a joy to behold. Lovely, yeah. I tell you what, if you want to see, if anybody wants to see spectacular trees with autumn colour, go to Sheffield Park just outside London because they they have the most fabulous parotias there. And mm. I mean, as you say, Thunder, it's just like watching a huge great bonfire unfold in front of your eyes. It's fabulous. Yeah, so lots of lots of tree flomo in this corner. Thank you, Kate, for <laughs> igniting it all, <laughs> reigniting it. Um, where are you at with your flomo? Um, do you know what I'm going to be? I mean, it's quite boring. It's it's very you know, but um, I absolutely love them and kind of wish I planted them um or one of them in in the garden instead of in one of the choices or as well as um it's it's a crab apple, um um which variety? I mean, there's so many varieties. I sort of get lost in the varieties. Alan life. will tell you one. Yeah, go on. He's Alan, your favourite. Give, give me a variety. <laughs> well, I love red sentinel. Ah, because, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Because you get, you know, you get your apple apple blossom um, as as you do in any crab apple tree, um, but it's it's the crabs themselves, the apples, mm-hmm. because they they turn red round about now and they stay on the tree until February March when they when their time comes to be eaten by the birds. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know how that how how they know. Um, I think it's something. To- it's either something to do with the calorific or antioxidant value or how well they keep because the, the ivy berries never get taken until right at the end of winter. Yeah. But it's either because they don't taste very nice and they're like, oh, God, we've got to go on the ivy berries now. Or, <laughs> you know, the ivy berries are so high in calories that they help um, the birds get into shape for breeding in spring. No one quite knows, but they are very, very high in calories. Well, they certainly produce fat pigeons around here because <laughs> they love balancing in the ivy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really like there's a, there's a yellow there's a yellow variety, um, a, a yellow fruiting. Golden hornet. 
yeah I think I think it's that one and there's one on the allotment that I walk past and I'll walk past in spring and it's like oh like, you can't see the branches for the blossom it's amazing it's always humming with insects and then when it fruits it's just completely just again just you can't see the branches mm. for the fruit um and then and then all, it all sort of falls to the ground and all gets really mushy and smells really autumnal and there are wasps everywhere and <laughs> um, which makes me very happy so yeah, I just think yeah it's, it's a good all-rounder and um if I, if I if I if I planted the garden again I would probably try and make room for a crab apple or just move house and go and grow on it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what you could do. I mean, for people that don't have that much room, you could get you could get a maiden crab apple tree mm. and you could grow it as a as a either as a cordon. Yeah. Right as an espalier. So you gradually touch oh, yeah. the branches. Yeah. It keeps it slim, so if you want a dividing area in your garden, because your eye stops at whatever there is, you could use crab apples for that, and that's a way of growing them without having a big tree. Yeah. That is a good idea, and you've also made me – I'm not sure I would really – basically, I think my box hedge is going to go. It, there's, I have so many box moths this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a box moth party out there every night, and they just dance around right by the window where I'm working at the kitchen table going like, please you, yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably going to go at some point and maybe I do something completely different rather than put a little hedge in there maybe I do train something and create a little little barrier, yeah, there, is, little barrier. there is such a thing as a step over apple yeah I mean, I've, got, I've got them in our garden here and you just have this it's like a, a single espalier going off to the right or to the left um or one to go each way but and and they're probably about 45 centimeters from the ground yeah. and if you if you prune them correctly you will actually get step over apple trees mm, they're amazing they're amazing yeah. they're really good for lining paths aren't they on allotments absolutely yeah yeah they work, work really well right then alan flomo time what would you like to add to the mix well um i'm gradually increasing my varieties of euonymus spindles um you mentioned them and i, and I thought oh that's gone so i'll have to pick another one <laughs> <laughs> I stole i'm gradually them. increasing those and you know how you get that the capsule, which is bright pink, and it opens, splits, opens to reveal an orange mm. berry in the middle. Well, a friend of ours called Tim Fuller, who you know, he um, produced a, a variety. I don't know where he got it from, which has got white white pips in the middle. So, oh, wow! I've got, I've got that to plant in the garden. Oh, I know exactly no. where it's going. Um, okay. The other thing I, I'm interested to do now that my trees have got big enough is to let the trees play hosts to other climbers. Um, and some of the Climbing roses that I've got in the garden, I mean, lots of them are named, but since they've grown tall enough to have these great festoons of hips that are falling out of the tree and just looking spectacular, somewhere between now and Christmas time, birds, if the birds leave them alone, that is, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, which is interesting what we touched on. How do they know um, whether, whether they're ripe or whether they're not? I don't know. Anyway. I'd like to have more roses and trees. I've now got seedlings. Oh. And I dug one up earlier this year because um, it was in the way and thinking that it was probably a seedling of Rosa Glauca, but it wasn't. It's much more vigorous. So that's one that's going to go into a tree somewhere. And I'm interested in using other climbers in trees oh. as well, um, just to see what happens. And I think, you know, I'm painting the sky as well as the ground. So if you've got yeah. a tree, remember, you can paint the sky. Yeah. There's a lot of excitement. You've really got us all thinking, Kate, and I'm sure you will do, everybody else. Perfectly timed, all of these wonderful gardening books coming out, just in time to snap them up and wrap them up for Christmas. <laughs> snap and wrap time. <laughs> so the tree in my garden, it's beautiful. And actually something we didn't say 
sort of as part of the podcast proper is it's full of the most beautiful illustrations gorgeous and my dog's in it did you see my dog's in it <laughs> yes <laughs> oh can i find it will i find it in time i don't know anyway my dog's in it and uh yes i, I like that i like the fact that they 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 uh they indulge me and put my doggy in. Well, in no, it's book. nice because that's personal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, my dog, I'd try to get her on every page if I wrote a book, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they probably wouldn't indulge that. Yeah. I hope it flies off the shelves, Kate. It's a lovely, lovely Thank book, you. and it's been a real treat to catch up with you. And, Thank um, you. and thanks that, for having me on the show. It's brilliant. That garden looks fabulous. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, and uh, happy gardening. Happy gardening. Love talking to you, Kate. <laughs> Cheers, take care. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.